Hello, everybody. Um, golly gosh, I have to say, we had a we had a session earlier on, but you are so much better looking. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you are a handsome crowd. Um, this is, I think, this is my forty um, third festival. You know, back of the truck to 250 people in the Oval. And look at us now, eh? One of the world's great events. But but one of my favourite things about this event is these sessions because, as artists often do and audience members too, you get about 10 seconds to talk to anybody and you're always on the way to or fro. So this is a wonderful opportunity to get to know the wonderful artists who make up this incredible event in a more thorough and meaningful way. Now, you're, you're part of the conversation too. So the idea is that after Grace and I meander on for a bit, then you leap in and ask meaningful questions and stuff. Yeah? You up for that? Mm. You don't have to. It just occurs to me that I think some of you would like to. Okay. So who's who's seen Grace perform so far? Oh, crikey. Okay, well, thanks for coming, Grace. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So what you might not know is that this is the midpoint, or no, probably not even the midpoint, in a, in a long and intriguing journey. Or at least I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought we should start by you telling us about how you come to be here. Sure. So who were you, who were you listening to? Or how did you decide that music was something that you wanted to do? Sure, yeah. I think um, like a lot of musicians, I feel like it chose me <laughs> more than I chose it, I think. Um, it's something that I always... Uh, yeah, it, very innately always wanted to do. I've always been uh, always been very musical, really. My d my I think I probably get it from my dad. Um, my dad absolutely loves music, and it's a great sort of, always been a great source of bonding between him and me, and he kind of brought me up on the, the classics, you know, the Beatles and Van Morrison and, um, you know, Bob Dylan and uh, Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that. So I kind of had a, a pretty sort of classic, classic rock upbringing from his... He's from uh, he's from the Wirral, so he's from good Liverpool stock, um, and uh, and I always I was always musical. I, uh, when I was about six, uh, my mum and dad, in the time honoured tradition of middle class parents, they got a piano as a piece of furniture, uh, and uh, I kind of sort of t wandered up to it and started picking out tunes. And so the piano was where I started. Um, and I started having piano lessons when I was, uh, yes, about six and had uh, only carried that through until I was about 10 or 11. Um, and then when I was about 13, um, my school was doing guitar lessons. And um, if I'm being completely and utterly brutally honest with you, I thought it would be um, the best way to impress girls um, would be if I started playing the guitar. Um, which was already, <laughs> even by that age, that was already uh, somewhat of a higher priority than it really should have been. Um, 
and uh and so I, yeah i took up the guitar and um it's been there ever since really it's something that i always wanted to do i think that i i describe myself more as a songwriter than a musician i'm not i'm not i'm no great shakes on any instrument really but songwriting is very much what i what i do um and i think that i've i say the music comes from my dad my mum i feel like i get my words from my mum uh, my mum's a kind of incredibly articulate person and just reads and reads and reads she would she would adore this place. Um, so I've kind of, uh, yeah, I've always had those influences. And, and in terms of the, the content of, the, of the, the songs, you know, I attribute that a lot to my folks as well. You know, they're very, very uh, left-wing people. They're both big socialists. They were, um, they're both retired now, but they were both social workers. My mum was a social worker. My dad was a probation officer. And uh, they really brought us up. You know, I've got, I've got three older siblings as well. I'm the, b the baby of four. Um, and and a Leo, as we were discussing at the back over there. So um, those things combined just have made me the dreadful attention seeker that you see before you. So uh, really, it was only ever going to go one way. I think I was <laughs> I was I was born for the stage. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then and yeah, and uh, I came to be here today. It's my first first time in Australia. Um, absolutely loving it and been here for five weeks started off doing a, a, a comedy tour um for the, for the first three weeks of february I was, uh, on the the guilty feminist podcast tour and that was um melbourne and sydney and brisbane and the gold coast and new zealand and then uh we started a headline tour my fiddle player ben moss flew out to join me a couple of weeks ago he's hiding behind the bookshelves there um uh and uh We've yeah been, been all over as well, so it's been yeah it's been an amazing, incredible first experience in Australia. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying. I pick, picked up a few of your um, too easy. That's my favourite, I think. Too easy. I love it when people say you know uh, when you order a drink or something. We were in a cafe the other day, and I said, "Can I have a cup of tea?" <laughs> and, the, and the waitress said, "Oh yeah, too easy." I thought, "Do you, do you want a challenge? <laughs> Ask you for something harder? I don't know." Yeah. yeah. So. Um, in a previous talk, one of the interesting things is how how organised is this trajectory? Like, are you following some sort of <laughs> grand plan <laughs> or are you like most of us who are like the pinball machine going from bumper yeah. to bumper and, and yeah. just taking what it throws up? Uh Dave, if I manage to have breakfast according to plan, then I'm doing well of a day, to be honest. Uh, the, no, nothing is. There's no. There's no master plan at all. I mean, I think that I. Um, so I. So in. in uh, I've been self-employed as a musician for about um, eight or nine years now, um, and in 2010, I was um, attending a Billy Bragg gig. Um, Billy Bragg is obviously a big influence of mine, and um, I. I just before we left the house, I had these home-recorded CDs. Um, I think I only had about four of them at the time. And um, just as we were leaving the house, I just, on the off chance, I just grabbed one and put it in my pocket. Went off to this Billy Bragg gig. Um, and after the show, me and my girlfriend at the time, we were in the queue for the for the bar. And he just, he just walked past me. And I was so completely and utterly starstruck uh, that I couldn't, I couldn't speak. But there was some base level carn carnal desire that not carnal's the wrong word sorry i don't have any car <laughs> have any carnal desires towards billy bragg um but it was a very um sort of 
karmic, maybe, sort of instinctual, I mean. Um, primal, thank you, blimey. Gosh, this is, we've gone wildly off topic here, haven't we? It was a primal desire, uh, and uh, as he was walking past me, that I just sort of stuck out my arm with this CD in it and basically kind of blocked his path. <laughs> and uh, he kind of looked down at me, because most people have to look down at me. And, uh, and he, and he kind of looked at me, and I, the only thing I could manage to say was, people have called me the female Billy Bragg. Uh, and he looked at me, and he threw back his head, and he laughed, and he said, you poor thing. <laughs> um, but he took the CD, and, um, and I figured, you know, well, people must do that to him every day. I imagine nothing's going to come from that. And then two weeks later... Got an email from him asking if I would um, go and play his stage at Glastonbury Festival. Um, yeah, it was quite, it was quite incredible, and and um, obviously I was I was over the moon and stunned by it. And then uh, um, when I got there, I got to the festival, and it was my first time ever playing a festival. That was, that was my introduction to festivals was playing Glastonbury Festival, and I got there and I and I imagined that you know I was going to be kind of first on at eight in the morning or something. I was very grateful to be there but I arrived and uh, and uh, Billy said uh, so Grace what we're gonna do is uh, we're all gonna be on stage together you me and Frank Turner I was like what so I turned so um, and, and there was literally 2,000 people there um, uh, obviously they're all there for him and Frank Turner but um, and I and it was just that it was kind of the way things fell was were a bit sort of serendipitous because that was June 2010 which was um, just coming up to two months after we lost the election to the Conservatives the first time um, in Britain, um, or the first time since I was kind of an adult. And I had written this song called Farewell to Welfare about basically losing that election and about um, primarily about Theresa May becoming the Minister for Women Inequalities, which she was made in 2010, and the kind of impact that that had on me as a gay person and as a woman um, to sort of, for the first time in my life, really get to grips with the idea that somebody who was in charge of my liberties as a gay person was somebody who had been demonstrably homophobic. I hadn't really been in that position before, and it was a massive wake-up call. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm ashamed to say that up to that point, especially because I have such amazing parents, I have such an amazing family, I hadn't really kind of clocked that I was a minority, really. I hadn't really, you know, even though I always knew I was gay, it wasn't something that I particularly thought was going to cause me any kind of struggle. And then suddenly there was this person put into this role who was in charge of my rights, and she was somebody who had proven herself at multiple stages in her career uh, to be somebody who believed in holding back the rights of people like me. And uh, and I sort of realised, you know, that these rights that we have, you know, that they we don't have them by accident. People came before us and they fought, and in some cases they died for them. And actually, these rights will always be there. Will always be people seeking to take them away. Um, and that was a huge part of my musical kind of development as well, because it took my songwriting in a completely different direction. So I had this song about Theresa May. I turned up at Glastonbury and I played it. And everybody went wild, and, uh, and and people started saying to me, "You're a protest singer," and that wasn't something that I ever set out to be at all. But it is something that I don't seem to be to be able to give up these days. It seems to be a lifelong affliction. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. I wouldn't apologise. No, well. no, no. Um, but you're funny. <laughs> well, no, no. I I've done my research, <laughs> and. There was a uh, an article in the New Yorker, which is quoted in your yeah in your Yorker, bio, yeah. with uh, a female member of the audience saying, 
Jesus, we get music and stand-up. <laughs> so were you the class clown? Is that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think I, I was... I was not entirely joking when I said that a- attention was a, was an addiction from fairly early on, really, um, and uh, and uh, yeah, I was. I think the, the but the the idea making people laugh that kind of came sort of later on after writing the after the politics came because um, it's a fun it's just funny how that all sort of wove together because um, I met through through Glastonbury and through Billy Bragg I met um, a wonderful comedian called Josie Long. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with her work. Um, she's actually doing the Melbourne Comedy Festival this year, and you should definitely check her out if you haven't seen her. She's one of my best friends, and she we met uh, again in, in uh, sort of 2010, 2011, and she invited me on tour with her. Um, she's a stand-up, um, and obviously I am I'm not, and uh, and sh- and you know, but she does very political material, and and it was that that was the link there, and I remember we did a three-month tour from the beginning of October to the end of the year. And uh, and I learned an enormous amount from her on that tour. And uh, the first night I went out, and um, she introduced me and, and brought me on. And uh, I'll never forget there was a man in the in the front row, in the centre of the front row, just visibly shut down. He just folded his arms and kind of went in on himself, and he looked really uncomfortable um, because obviously, you know, her audience w- were planning, expecting to see comedy. You know, they hadn't signed up to see music, and. Um, and it really just got in my head, and and I and that that first gig, that first night, I to u- to use a stand-up comedy expression, if you'll forgive me, I died on my ass um, at that gig and had a really really bad gig, and uh, and then the next night, just as as mostly to make myself try and feel a bit more comfortable and feel make feel a bit more ingratiated with the audience, I started talking a bit in between songs, um, and it wasn't in any way intended to to be comedy at all, but. Um, over the years, it's really sort of developed into... I, I would never describe myself as a comedian. I, I, what, what stand-up comedians do is terrifying to me, and I have enormous respect for it. Um, but I do think that when you are singing about these sorts of issues... You know, I sing a lot about feminism. I sing a lot about homophobia. I sing a lot about fascism. Um, and we live... You know, politically, we live in very, very, very heavy, dark times. A lot of this stuff is quite sort of... You know, it can be a lot to compute, and I think that both in terms of not having an audience, you know, switch off. You know, if you just go out there, you're just going to do an hour of really, really, really tough material. You know, in, in inevitably, people are just going to reach a point where they kind of can't feel it as deeply anymore. But if you if you can if you can make people laugh, you know, it's always been my experience that if you make people laugh, then five minutes later, when you make them cry, you make them cry more deeply because they're you know their hearts are more op- open to that. Because you know, five minutes ago they were kind of on on this high, um, and I think all, you know all of the best comedy. You know, the comedians that I hugely respect. I've been very very fortunate to work with some of Britain's best comedians, and you know, all of the the best comedy I think has got you know that sort of heart to it and a and a, and a serious message to it at the heart of it. Um, and I think you know I think it's it's it it it's a good way often if you go out there and you say, especially to people who don't know me. You know, if I come out there and I'm sort of got my acoustic guitar and my Doc Martins, and I, you know, from the from the moment I walk on stage, I'm like, hey guys, you know, I'm a, I'm a lesbian socialist folk singer. I'm going to sing you some protest songs. You know, they don't always go yippee. This is going to be fun. <laughs> um, but if you can, you know, if you can sort of, m- if you can just communicate that you don't, you don't take yourself too seriously. Do you know what I mean? I am conscious that this stuff can all be quite worthy, um, but I think. 
you know, we got to find we got to find things to laugh about. I think in these dark times as well. And at the end of the day, you know, nobody needs a gig. I don't see it as my job whatsoever to make everybody feel very depressed about the way things are. I th see my job as the opposite of that. We all have, you know, the idea always is that people will leave the gigs feeling like they can do something, they can change the world in whatever, you know, corner of the world that 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 is where their power lies. You know. Yes. <laughs> no, but I mean in real... Sorry, were you expecting a joke? Don't no, you? no, no. No, but I was just going to say um, in recent years I never thought I'd be so grateful to uh, Americans and, and people from England because with Donald and Boris mm. you've provided us with some enormous comic relief, <laughs> yeah, I have well. to say. Not for you, yeah. but from afar we just scratch our heads. Mm. So I'm interested in terms of musicians in general mm. using their skills to address issues and messages. Um, more? How are we going at the moment? Are there more people getting involved in what, for want of a better word, we might call a protest movement in terms of music? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we are. I mean, I think it's... it's it's a f it's a funny thing in in Britain where I've had it all my career where every couple of months somebody will write an article uh, l bemoaning the lack of protest singers uh, and how nobody's writing political music anymore and uh, I that is not my experience of working as a musician for sort of twelve years um, but also I think that it's quite easy for us to um, expect everything to look the way that it's always looked. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't, I don't know really who is the next Bob Dylan. I don't know who the next Billy Bragg is. But I do know that, um, especially in, in grime and in rap, you know, there's the, the music in Britain at the moment has never, ever, ever, ever been, I don't think, more political than it is right now. You know, we had Stormzy on the pyramid stage of Glastonbury literally calling out the Prime Minister. You know, two weeks ago at the Brit Awards, uh, we had Dave literally calling the Prime Minister a racist on primetime national TV. I mean, I don't know how you can get more political mainstream than that, but I think it's quite... Um, it is often the way, I think, that people just kind of go... Well, hey, where's where's the where's the rambling folk singer with their acoustic guitar? Uh, and even in my experience, you know, I mean, often it's sort of just like, where's the, if I may say so, it's where's the where's the straight white male rambling folk singer with their acoustic guitar? I mean, I am I am a rambling folk singer with an acoustic guitar, and I, you know, until very recently, I found it very difficult to get mentioned in those articles. I mean, I th it's it's a funny thing because my experience has been completely outside of the mainstream music industry. And people often think that that is by design uh, and uh, that that was some sort of punk decision. And it is not at all. Um, that is the way my career has unfolded because uh, I have never had any uh, interest from the, the, the music industry, the record industry whatsoever. To this day, I've never had any interest from a label or anybody like that. Um, and, you know, I think I'm not, I don't, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy or anything, but you know, music, especially I think these days, especially modern music industry, it's never been more capitalist. It's, it's, a, it's a consumerist, capitalist machine. That's what they're doing. They're seeking to make the most money they can possibly make. And, you know, Tories don't buy my records. That's true. You know, I have, I am dividing the audience. It is absolutely true that there are huge swathes of people that will be turned off to what I do from the moment I open my mouth because 
they don't support the politics. Um, so I think, you know, I, th I think mainstream artists are hugely encouraged to just be, you know, inoffensive. But do we have a question over here? say censorship because I think that um, I'm quite um, I'm a big supporter of the or believer I suppose in the idea that um, no no nobody's entitled to a platform um, I think you know if any if I was being put in jail for what I say then that would be censorship but I think um, the the way that the internet has, I'm so, so grateful that I've lived in the time that I've lived in because I have been able to have a career complete outside of the music industry. Um, and I know if I am, I am absolutely 100% sure that if I had lived 25, 30 years before, I would not have had this career. I really don't think I would have done. Um, you know, the most commercially successful thing that I've ever done is a song called Black Tie, which is a song about the experience of being a butch lesbian in a patriarchal homophobic society. Now I think 25 years ago, if I'd have gone into a record label and said, hey guys, I got a hit for you. <laughs> I don't think they would have gone, that's gonna be a seller, do you know what I mean? But actually as it's turned out, you know, there are, you know, I think it used to be the case, I believe, that uh, in across the arts, but in music particularly, I think, the, the group of tastemakers used to be so much smaller, right? And, you know, it was a very, very, very small group of people who decided what was going to be s successful, who decided what stories were going to be told, which is why, as we all know, for so many years, we have seen basically the same stories told over and over and over again. We haven't seen a diversity of stories told across arts. Um, but I am so lucky that I lived in a time where I can publish my own music, I can put it on the internet, and within, I can upload a song to YouTube, and within seconds, it is available to some closeted queer kid in, you know, small town Texas or whatever, you know, and, and that those, those uh, links between us are completely invaluable, you know, to somebody like me. I mean, uh, I have been able to build uh, an audience kind of all over the world. I mean, obviously, mostly in Britain. But I have been able to do that without anybody's permission. Nobody, you know, I never needed anybody really to put me on anywhere. I was able to just put it out directly to people, you know? And I think that is something that is really, I mean, don't get me wrong, like the internet and social media are uh, responsible for a multitude of sins. But I, for, for myself, I have to say that I think the ability to publish ourselves uh, is it's been absolutely invaluable to my career. It's been, I wouldn't have one without it, you know? Just as long as you never thought you'd make a quid out of it. <laughs> um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, th I, I, I take your point, and I think that it's a conversation moving forward that music needs to have. I mean, we are getting to the stage now. I did a tour in Britain this year um, supporting uh, Frank Turner, who's... I'm sure you're all aware, is a, a hugely successful sort of punk rock singer in, in the UK. And that was an arena tour, and his audience is uh, quite a lot younger than mine, really. And that was the first time that I really experienced, uh, in a big way, out, on th out at the merch stall. I had a lot of people come up to me and saying, oh, I don't have a CD player, but I'll listen to you on, on Spotify. Um, and uh, that is a, that's, we, we have to, as, as workers, 
you know, musicians are workers. I think we have to uh, come up with some sort of solution to that because I don't know what the future of music holds if we are raising generations of people who have absolutely no expectation that they will pay for music at all. Um, you know, and the crazy thing about Spotify, not to go off on a tangent here, but people do pay for Spotify. You know, streaming itself is not a bad thing. The model of Spotify should work. It's just Spotify don't pay artists. Um, and yeah, so you, you people pay their Spotify subscription, Spotify don't pay artists. And it is crazy when you think about it that I can't envisage any other industry where somebody would come along and say, so listen, we've got this great idea. We're going to take what you make and we're going to sell it to people, but we're just going to cut off the bit where we pay you. Nobody would do it, right? But people just love making music, so we're always going to do it. Um, but so that is, but, I, but again, I would say, like with so many things, there are ethical ways to, to use the internet and there are ethical ways to support art. I mean, the record that I'm touring at the moment, Queer as Folk, um, that was completely produced via crowdfunding. Um, that was, I raised the money for that on Kickstarter. Um, and, you know, I asked for £10,000 and I got £18,000, you know. And I think, uh, it, it, I think it's just uh, about finding those paths to sort of ethically support the art that you want to see, you know. And just, I guess, just kind of being aware that I wasn't ever really aware until I was in the position that I'm in now that, you know, um, I think there's still a, a bit of a, a, a belief that music is this very uh, meritocratic uh, sort of industry where, you know, you, hey, if you're really good, you'll get put on the radio. It just does not work like that. You know, I think a lot of people uh, in the UK, a lot of people come up to me and say, why don't I hear you on the radio? Well, you know, the people you hear on the radio, they have, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds going into press uh, budgets to get them on the radio. That's how it all works, you know. But I think the more people are aware of that, you know, I think generally people aren't really aware of that. I wasn't aware of it until I had a record um, that was we were sort of trying to compete to get it into those platforms. And, you know, it's just the money that you're coming up against, really. And in terms of niche audiences and, and using the internet for good, mm. um, house concerts. Oh, yeah. You know, now, ten years ago... No such thing existed. Mm. So if you were trying to get into a musical territory, you had to find an agent and or a promoter. Mm. But there are people all over the world now that you can contact directly mm. and they get in touch with their 50 or 60 mates yeah, yeah. and all of a sudden you've got an ability to go and play mm. in a territory and start to scope out. Yeah. So do you do those? Yeah, I've done... I had great success with them in Canada. Um, but... Um I'll go wherever I'm asked, to be honest. So <laughs> if anybody's got a house in Australia that they want me to come sing in, I'd love to, yeah. Who's yeah. got a big house? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what about a song? Do you love think? To do a Would song. you like a song? Yeah. Yes, sure. yes. All right. Um, sure. And and don't forget, I mean I know that person jump protocol by asking a question early but that's that's okay um but we're uh, anarchists in here yeah, don't we? we don't follow yeah. no rules bunch of pinkos <laughs> <I don't>. <laughs> <laughs> um so after grace is sung we'll throw it open to you for a bit of a chat and it can go wherever you decide to take it so many gigs this weekend at this festival I'm trying not to do too much repetition 
Um, so if you uh, if you see me, I know a lot of folks did see me or see me in Ben yesterday. Um, hopefully you won't have heard this one. I was um, we were discussing what was going to come up uh, and talking about musical influences. Um, I mentioned just there that I grew up listening to a lot of Bob Dylan. Um, any Bob Dylan fans in? Good stuff. And uh, what I find is uh, that when I, uh, the many times in my life that I have had my heart broken. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, you don't. You don't need to do that. That's fine. Um, I uh, we because I, I we've all had our heart broken. I'm sure everybody here has had their heart broken. There's nothing special about getting your heart broken. Um, it's just that uh, I'm an artist. So it's much worse for me than it was for you. Um, yeah. uh, but uh, when I uh, when I have my heart broken, invariably, I find that I end up listening to a lot of Bob Dylan, drinking a lot of beer, and ultimately I come to the conclusion that the world goes on turning. But I normally get seven or eight really self-indulgent songs out of it first. So it's quite a lucrative heartbreak. Um, and this is a song that I wrote about about Bob Dylan getting me through a heartbreak. It's called Why Bob Dylan Sang. It goes like this. a Bob Dylan fan, you'll notice that I've lovingly paid tribute to slash stolen some of his lyrics for this song. Well, once I met a girl who had my measure from the start. She tied me up in knots and then she tore me clean apart. And I laid with her for years and years, but I never knew her heart for all I tried. And the life we had was fiction, but it was a lie she told me well. Advertising heaven is the price you pay for hell. And I tried to make her feel my love long before Adele. Oh, how I tried. And we put Zimmerman on Spotify and listeners he told about how he gave that girl his heart, but she wanted his soul. And I never understood that line. It didn't make no sense, but when she went, I saw what Bob Dylan meant. And once I knew a woman who broke just like a little girl I took our love and built with it a perfect little world And I still look back every day and wonder why it didn't work for all we tried Cause we gave it every inch of us and every ounce of love But even Dylan knows that sometimes love just ain't enough And baby tangled up in blue is all I ever ended up for all I tried I think I could have loved her till I knocks on heaven's door And she'll always be the one who gives me shelter from the storm But you know, in the end, it ain't me, babe She was looking for and I saw What Bob Dylan thought What Bob Dylan thought, yeah
every heart is just the start of some new art. So when you build yourself together out of broken, shattered parts, just remember that for every scar you took on a bad day, you know you'll always be somebody else's one that got away. Yeah, you're changing and you're growing, even if you don't quite know it. And every tear is worth its salt, yeah, if it makes of you a poet. So be grateful for the ones who blew away your best laid plans those lovers you discovered with each touch of trembling hands you understand why Bob Dylan sang why Bob Dylan sang yeah why Bob Dylan sang why Bob Dylan sang yeah and I think I understand Thanks. Yeah. Grace, I wonder if you'd like to talk about your songwriting process because sure. people are always interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, insofar as uh, th there is one, um, it's very, very different for me. I mean, I think that... Um, there are things that I, uh, a song like that, I kind of very much sat down with a notebook and I sort of tried, I had all of these different Bob Dylan lyrics that I was kind of trying to weave into a bit of a narrative. Um, so sometimes it's a pen and paper, sometimes it's just sitting with a guitar. You know, I find that um, the the this is not something that people ever really want to hear when they ask about your songwriting process because I think it's such a cop-out of an answer. But I think the best things that I've ever written, to be honest, they just come and I... I and I don't know where they come from. You know, I think um, Leonard Cohen uh, said, if I knew where the songs came from, I'd go there more often. Um, yeah. And that is, I relate to that an awful lot. You know, I mean, I think um, I tend to, uh, when it's politics, you know, I will just get sort of tied up in knots about something and I'll be very, very, very angry about something or very sad about something. Um, and I'll often sit with it for a while and then, you know, sometimes you just play on the guitar and something comes out. Um, you know, the things that have definitely kind of defined my career, I'd say the two songs that have been the most important songs in terms of my career development and that have meant the most to people um, are that song Farewell to Welfare that I mentioned earlier on uh, and that song uh, Black Tie um, that I mentioned as well. And uh, those have, uh, the, the, the line I'll say farewell to welfare uh, was, uh, honestly, I didn't, uh, it just came out of my mouth. It's like it came out of my mouth before it, bypassed my brain entirely um, and uh, and you can't sometimes things come out and it's the way it happens with tunes you know I think sometimes melodies th parts of melodies just produce themselves and uh, and it's like it's like tuning into a radio station on like a, a broken radio and every now and then something will come across the static and you and and you just wish you could tune into it all the time but it's the and i really i mean it's it sounds like a very sort of hippie thing to say but i do believe this stuff is all in the air you know and you can do things to make yourself more receptive to it you know you can go on writing retreats and you can you know turn off the your phone and you can uh sit with candles around you but and and put yourself in the most kind of emotionally receptive state you can be in but ultimately you know, sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't. I'm actually, I'm at the, the end of a point of, I found it very, 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 very difficult to write songs all of last year. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I'm pleased and can't tell you how relieved I am to say that I'm out of it and I've been writing songs again. Actually, since I've been 
I needed to come to Australia, I guys. Uh, that's what I needed to do, I think. Um, but I know, and I was really thinking, you know, maybe that's it for me. Maybe I, <laughs> maybe I got these, I got these few years of writing songs, and maybe I'll, I never will again. You know, I think it's something that is, it's, it's like, it's mystical. It's, 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 it's bigger than me. I, I, I can't really tell you necessarily how it, how it goes. I mean, I think that, as you say, like words are very, very important to me, and I'll always write words. But I find writing words much, much easier than I find writing tunes. I, I, th I think it I even, f I even feel like a fraud saying using using the word writing tunes. I don't really feel like that's anything I've ever really done. I feel like they sort of, they have presented themselves to me at times that I've been very, very lucky enough to catch them. So, so if that's the case, if if the melodies aren't the first thing that occurs to you, do you collaborate? Um, I I have done in, in parts. I used to be a part of a um. I sort of sometimes I'm a part of a, a six-person collaboration in the UK called Coven, um, which is um, uh, if you're familiar with the duo Ovili and Tito, um, who are wonderful songwriters. Um, and if you have you had the TV show Gentleman Jack over here yet? Yeah, um, I don't know. It's, it's if it's not been on yet, it's definitely coming um, about um, Anne Lister uh, and the my friends. Belindra Huli and Heidi Tito, they composed the theme, the theme tune for that. Uh, the song is called Gentleman Jack. It's a wonderful song. If you don't know the story, if you don't know the TV show, just Google Gentleman Jack. It's a very, very fascinating tale um, about a kind of historical lesbian who was just a bit of a sort of badass. Um, and, uh, and so I was a part of a collaboration with them and the, a British uh, folk trio called Lady Maisery. Um, and uh, we wrote a lot of stuff together. We did a, a bit of touring for the past sort of few years. We're all kind of pretty busy on different projects at the moment, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I'm open to. I, th I, th I am quite a kind of solitary songwriter in a lot of ways because I think that, um, you know, if, if anybody was in the women's concert this morning, then you'll know how much we basically, all of us just one after another, just took it in turns to basically say that songwriting is our therapist. Um, and it's the truth, you know, I think that when I am, when I'm heartbroken, when I'm angry about the world, when I'm overflowing with emotions and love for my niece, for my family, for whoever I'm in love with, you know, I, I it's it, it comes from a, a very um, sort of raw emotional place, you know, and I think that I'm always... Um, I'm I'm always you know I think it was um uh Anna McAvoy this morning said you know I'm always I'm always just telling my own stories I'm always writing for myself basically it's a huge it's an enormous honor and it's the highest compliment a songwriter can have if somebody um identifies with what you've written or if if what you're if you this if the, if the bit of my story that I'm trying to tell if that is applicable to your story that is that is huge hugely uh on uh, you know a huge honor for me um but ultimately I'm just trying to work things out in my head, you know, trying to get out of my head with it, basically. So that's, uh, yeah, where it comes from, I would say. Questions? Hands straight up there. Hi. Where do I find hope? Um, I find a lot of hope in, in young people at the moment. Um, I think the generation that are coming up, um, two, two generations behind me, basically, um, or generations 15 years, yeah, one generation behind me, I think the teenagers of today are endlessly, limitlessly inspiring to me. Um, I mean, I think particularly around the climate strikes, um, the climate protests, you know, um, but also, I mean, I think the wave of like youth activism that we're having at the moment, I think a lot of that started, um, or my awareness of it started, I could chart it back to the um, uh, Parkland school shooting um, in America a couple of years ago where the survivors of that shooting, um, which obviously was, you know, something more 
terrible than I'm sure any of us can really imagine. And the teenagers that survived that shooting, even though they had come through that incredibly traumatic experience and they had lost their their classmates and their teachers, um, they went on as a result of that. Out they came out of that tragedy to spearhead this incredible anti-gun campaign in the states. Um, even though, the, as I'm sure you know, you all know that the gun lobby in America has so much money and power, and they threw absolutely everything they had at these teenagers, and every single time these teenagers just met that with dignity and integrity and courage, and I think that they're absolute heroes, you know, and um, and you know, the climate, the climate strikes, the climate protests across the board, you know, I, I think that I, I sort of talk about this a little bit on stage, but you know, it does, it seems to be the case to me that, you know, those people that are sort of 10 years younger than me and younger than that. You know, I feel like they, they've come up at this time that they don't have the, you know, my generation, like we, we, we believe that, we believe in climate change, we believe it's all so bad, but also we kind of, we grew up at a time that it was sort of such an abstract idea, it's really hard to get your heads around it. And they grew up at this time that they just haven't got, they haven't got time. You know, they're, they're so aware of the urgency of it, you know, that no excuse is good enough for them. And, like, absolutely, why would you go to school when, you know, you're basically being told that the world's not going to be there in 50 years? You know, you haven't got time to mess around with this, and we haven't got time to mess around with this. You know, so I do. I take an awful lot of hope in that. Um, and I just, I think that, you know, I have had moments since 2016 where hope is hard to find. But I also really do believe that the whole system is irreparably broken. It absolutely must be. You know, we are, we are, I, I do believe, and I know I'm not the first generation to think this, but I do believe we are living through the end of capitalism. I think we have to be. It's ruined everything. It's not working. It's working for such a tiny number of people. And I am, I... Maybe I am kidding myself, and maybe it's the only way that I can find hope in the in the world that I see around me. And when I see so many people choosing unkindness, I think I have to believe that this is the rock bottom for us, and we have to build something new and better from what we're seeing now. Um, I don't think it's going to be easy, but I think there's basically an alternative. Things have got to get better. <laughs> they can't get much worse. Yeah. Yes, and I'm looking around and there's a number of people from my generation and uh, I apologise on oh our hey collective no. behalves. If there was a way to drain my hope, sir, it was that question. Um, uh, well, the first thing I, I would say is, and it's not, listen, I'm not going to split hairs about how disastrously we lost in Britain because Labour lost disastrously, but it wasn't not close in terms of votes. It wasn't not close. There was three million votes in it. Um, the way that those votes were spread hurt us a lot, and a lot of the reason for that spread is because geographically... Um, so th what you have to uh, understand about Britain is, and this is uh, applicable basically all over the world, 
um, is that there's so few uh, young right-wing people. All of the, every, everybody under 30 voted Labour, basically. Um, it was overwhelmingly for the Labour Party, the youth vote. And it was a high turnout among the youth vote as well. Um, but I think that a lot of those young people are growing up in towns where there's not an awful lot of, they're ex-mining towns, you know, where, where the Labour vote crumbled is the places that we needed it to be, where it's always been essentially taken for granted, which is the, the, the northern and the Midlands ex-mining communities. Um, and uh, the younger people who are coming up who have sort of more progressive politics, um, who want to live in cities, they want to live in multicultural societies, they, wanna, they want to go where the jobs are, where the industry is, um, and a lot of them are just leaving those towns. They're leaving those towns uh, to people who are, for whatever reason, voting Tory. Um, a lot of those people in those towns, they voted Tory. A lot of those people voted for the Brexit party. Um, we have to look at why that is. I mean, Brexit, I think that the narrative about the election that we just lost, there are a lot of vested interests in trying to make that story the idea with with we're being sold so aggressively the story that the Labour Party was too left wing and that's why we lost that the Labour Party needs to move back to the centre and that is not accurate that's not what happened right this election was not like any other election because Brexit has never happened before Brexit is a one of a kind event in Britain right it's the, it's going to affect British society more than anything I think since the Second World War and uh, we have to look at why it's happened and where it's come from and those are huge big questions that I'm not going to bore you all going into. Um, but I think that, you know, it is, it is actually, it is still, you know, uh, the case that we had an unprecedented uh, movement of Labour Party volunteers, the like of which I've never seen in my lifetime. You know, we're talking about hundreds of people turning up to canvas. And and you know and the the Labour Party membership has never been higher than it is in the UK, um, so that it has become under Jeremy Corbyn. So I think you know what I. It's a difficult thing because. I so I'm gay. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I'm a feminist, uh, and. You know, I'm a woman in a patriarchal society. And increasingly, my instinct, uh, when I encounter people who don't share my views, who don't share my politics, uh, or whose politics believe that I am inferior because of those things, my instinct is to walk away from those people. That's what I'm doing. I'm taking myself out of those situations. And honestly, I'm wrong. We're not going to win if we keep doing that. We're not going to win if we keep le leaving these towns because we're so uncomfortable being in them. We're just leaving them to just stay in one period in time, right? We're not going to, you know, I, I, I found this so, it's been so interesting watching elections all over the world, but obviously with the Democratic primary that we're watching happen in the US at the moment as well. You know, I mean, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, um, and these days I spend almost no time on Facebook, right? And the difference between those platforms is m largely who's on Facebook is people that I know, people in my actual real life. And I would rather talk to strangers on Twitter who agree with me, who are going to back me up. And let me tell you, if you believe my Twitter feed, we were going to win by a landslide, Labour. But it's not... Win we, ha we have... And I'm more guilty of it than anybody. I don't like talking to people who don't agree with me because I feel very threatened by those people. You know, the people, who, the people I'm talking about, the, the, the structures that I'm talking about, I'm talking about white supremacy, I'm talking about 
heteronormativity, talking about patriarchy. And I don't want to waste my time talking to people who believe that I'm second class for, for various reasons. You know, but, uh, but actually, as long as we believe in democracy, and I do, and even though the kind of democracy that we have in Britain is a very, very, very flawed form of it, there's not going to be any solutions unless we rediscover talking to each other, I think, and have those awkward conversations, you know, and that is digitally and physically, geographically. I have to stop walking away from people who tell me that they don't agree with feminism, that they think that gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married. I have to uh, get over the idea that it's not my place to teach them, that it's not my job, that, I, that I, it's, it's, a, it's, it's my time and they're not entitled to it. Because it's true, they're not entitled to my time, but I want the world to be better. I want the world to be better than it is now. And I am not winning by walking away from them, basically. We um, we had our own democratic disappointment mm. a little time yeah, ago. Well, well, some of us did. Yeah. But um, anybody else? Yes, sir. Thank you. Oh, hey, no, no, no. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. I we it doesn't get reported on very much, but one of my best friends is Australian, um, and uh, she actually uh, during a visit from an a, an Australian politician, she was she was she's a doctor, my friend. She's a wonderful doctor, Dr. Zoe Stewart, um, and she uh, was she staged a protest at this kind of very. She was invited as a as a kind of expert doctor in her field, and she staged this protest. Um, against it, I think it was an ambassador, but we we hear about it, but nowhere near as much, you know. And I think, and since I've been over here, I've l I mean, I'm learning so much, um, you know, about indigenous culture over here, and feeling, I mean, <laughs> life as a white British person is just constantly being ashamed, basically, of the things that we have done and the things that we continue to do. And I am ashamed of the ignorance that I have about so many things. Um, but it has been a huge experience in the things, how much more there is for me to learn. And, you know, I hope that it's something that if I can find a way to songwrite about it, that's something that I definitely want to do. Yeah. Oh. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for saying that. That's a lovely thing to say. Um, yeah, I think uh, the the most the th the thing that I I come back to over and over and over again um, is just authenticity. I think and honesty. I think all you can ever do. We're so encouraged. I think 
not just in arts, not just in music, but I think in, in, in life. I think we're so encouraged these days to kind of stylize ourselves as something and brand ourselves as something. You know, I think um, uh, you're, you know, it's, it happens, you see it over and over again in music that people say, if you, if you try and describe some music that you like to a friend, they'll probably say, oh, who, who is it like? Who does it sound like? Um, and uh, and we're, that's, we're very guilty of doing that, I think, is just trying to box things off together, you know, and I think that kind of misses the point that all of us, actually, we're trying to sound like nobody, do you know what I mean? We're trying to sound like ourselves. Um, so I think that um, th if, you, if you're writing honestly, then that you can't go wrong for that, and I think it's, I, and I struggle a lot with um, the, the, the relationship between writing for myself and writing for other people, because I always in my head, I'm like, how's this gonna be perceived? How's this gonna be received? What are people gonna think about it? Are people gonna like me? You know, are people gonna like me? And I think that that is, uh, that's the biggest barrier that I think you got, but I think uh, you have to, it just sounds like a real cliche, but you have gotta be true to yourself, you know? As long as you're writing honestly, as long as you are kind of facing yourself, then I think you'll, you'll go, right, yeah, what's your instrument? Oh, great, cool, yeah, you only need three chords. You build a career on it. <laughs> and the truth. <laughs> and the truth, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yes, more. I mean, when I figure it out, I'll tell you. Yeah, um, we're a long way off from it being uh, a, a, a post-gender utopia in the UK, I'll tell you that. Um, I mean, I think that the biggest thing that we can do is, uh, um, my answer to this, uh, my answer to a lot of questions I find these days is basically just about solidarity. Um, and I think that, you know, I do a lot of work with the Guilty Feminist podcast um, and uh, I'm getting some nods of recognition from folks in the audience who, uh, which is hosted by, I'm sure you're aware, the wonderful uh, comedian Deborah Francis-White and um, their big thing that they talk about there is uh, use your power where you hold it and we all have power somewhere, right? Um, and I think just uh, being mindful about where we are signal boosting people you know where we are using our power i mean everybody like i said before about the internet everybody these days is a publisher everybody has the opportunity to do that everybody has a platform of some size or, or can access one um i mean i think like i said before about n a lot of people don't know about the sort of money that it goes into trying to get on the radio and things um you know un independent unsigned artists are not going to have access to those budgets and i'd probably argue that probably disproportionately women are going to be affected by that more um, but so, you know, really when you, you know, th think about that in terms of recommending things to people, in terms of your Facebook wall, your Twitter feed, you know, in terms of where you, w w like, boost these artists up, do you know what I mean? And if you see, I mean, I would always say, just as a small plea from an independent artist um, who's got a 
gig in Sydney on Tuesday that sold 12 tickets. You know, if you see, if, if you see a woman coming to town, if you see a woman, you know, coming on in your area, even if you don't know who it is, go along, you know, like su support it with your, with your dollars, basically. Um, I mean, in terms of how to combat it, I think it's, that's only going to be the only way we're ever going to do it. You know, I don't think that we are... Male allies, don't get me wrong, are absolutely amazing, but I think it is going to be... It's going to be a female-led network, basically. Um, and uh, I, sh I should say, yeah, women and non-binary people, I think I w we have to elevate each other, you know, basically, is what I'd say about that. Sorry, it's not, it's not, <laughs> it's not a hugely inspiring answer to the question, which is like, yeah, it's pretty shit, isn't it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, sorry, apologise for my language there. But it's... Which but might it is get worse before the end. It is getting better, Grace, and you may well live long enough to see this, but, you know, Universal Music is the largest record company in the world and they have just issued a manual for their staff which is about the staff of this company may has to embrace diversity mm. and gender equality now coming from an industry that's been absolutely dominated by old white blokes mm -hmm. actually might have to narrow that down that applies to a lot of industries <laughs> <laughs> but but that's a step in the right direction from them. Mm -hmm. And it isn't going to change quickly, mm. but they they are making baby steps towards yeah, I mean being I think more inclusive. Yeah, sure. And I do think, again, I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily a big fan of, of what we might refer to as council culture, but I do think that these days, uh, you know, as I said, I just can't overstate how much you do have a voice. You know, I mean, uh, one of our biggest uh, folk festivals in, in the UK, Cambridge Folk Festival, you know, a couple of years ago, um, they announced a lineup that was just overwhelmingly male. You know, there was, I think there was about two artists on the bill, uh, two female artists on the bill across the entire weekend. And there was a huge outcry. There was a massive, you know, in response to that, there was a huge outcry. And so they added a whole other day, which, th you know, was just only women artists. And that was also a bit weird because we were kind of, you know, segregated onto Thursdays. But, you know, since then, they, have, they haven't made that mistake again because people were angry about it. People were going to boycott it. You know, there was it was bad press for them. People don't like bad press, you know, and you've never had more of an opportunity to create that for people where it's, where it's deserved, where it's necessary, you know. Um, so I would say just make your voices heard about that. I mean, festival bookings are, you know, mainstream festivals in the UK are s still really, really, really bad for this you know um but um the lead singer i think of uh the 1975 just uh, a couple of weeks ago um the male lead singer uh he he said he said on twitter like y y sure okay i i won't i won't play any festivals that don't have a gender balance you know so and i think it is worth it's go it's worth talking to 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 male artists that you like as well and trying to you know get them on side with that get them on board with the problem um i think yeah a lot of what i'm saying i realize just comes down to talking <laughs> We need to keep talking to each other. I clearly am a fan of talking. <laughs> uh. Happily. Yeah, that's my favourite question in the world. <laughs> um, so butch is a word that I have had a very long and very complicated relationship with. Um, and I would say that it's something that I've always been. Um, I, uh, right from when I was very, 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 very small, I always... It's funny, when you're a little kid uh, you and you're a tomboy, 
that's okay. And then you reach a certain age where you're supposed to have grown out of it. And if you haven't grown out of it, people get really funny about that. Um, and um, I said earlier on that my mum is wonderful. My mum is wonderful. She's one of the best people that I know. Um, but she's very, very feminine. I have an older sister who's very, very, very feminine. And growing up, femininity was a huge so, you know, bonding area for them. Um, and I think for a lot of years, my mum, I mean, I, I love her to death and she loves me to death and I've never doubted that. But for a lot of years, I think my mum was quite sad that I am that I am this way. Um, I don't think she is anymore, but I definitely absorbed that. And uh, and from the wider world, you know, I, was, I, I, I think we still live in a tremendously butch-phobic world, you know, I think e even more so than... Uh, homophobia is obviously a huge problem, but I would say butch-phobia is a problem in and of itself, right? It's a completely different thing. It's a, that intersection of misogyny and homophobia uh, of women who are not in any way thinking about the male gaze and are not bothered about the male gaze and don't exist for the male gaze. And patriarchy has always had a problem with that, and they continue to. Um, and But the way that the problem patriarchy has got with that manifested in, in my life was obviously that I just grew up absorbing these messages that we all do, that butch women are inherently unattractive, could never be attractive, uh, and are frightening and threatening. And I... Uh, absolutely believe that for years and years and years and years and years um, and what changed my perception of it and what changed where I was with it in my head was a few things um, so a couple of years ago coming up to three years ago now I was um, I, I'm very good friends with the comedian Robin Ince who's a fantastic uh, comic and who's um, a wonderful man and he was at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in um, 2017 it would have been and he called me up uh, and he said I've just seen this show by Hannah Gadsby called Nanette and there's some recognition in the audience for that um, and he said you have to go and see it and I had never heard of Hannah Gadsby um, and I said okay cool yeah I will how's your show going and he said no 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 you don't understand you have to go and see it I said yeah 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 it sounds good it sounds good. I'll, I'll look into it he's like no 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 you need you need to buy a ticket he's really urgent about it I said, okay, fine, I'll buy a ticket to this show, my God. And um, she was doing it at Soho Theatre after the uh, Edinburgh Fringe run. And I was one of the last people to buy a ticket to it on one of the last nights of the run. Um, and I went to see Hannah Gadsby do uh, a show which is a, an hour-long show um, about being a butch lesbian in a patriarchal society which is hostile to butchness in women. And it changed my life. I cannot overstate how much that show changed my life. Um, it changed the way that I see myself on stage. It changed the way that I see myself in the world. It changed the way that I move through the world. Um, and I had never seen, I had, and, it, and it was uh, almost the first time I even realized or recognized that I'd never seen my story told anywhere my entire life. You know, and I was 30 years old. I'd never seen, I'd never seen butch lesbians in culture anywhere. I'd never seen anyone on stage or screen anywhere that looked like me. Um, and that was hugely revelatory to me. Um, and the show, I'm sure you've all seen it. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. It's absolutely life-changing art. Um, so, and that was happening kind of concurrently around the same time 
that Me Too was happening. Um, and I and Me Too had quite an interesting effect on me um, because um, I didn't recognise in my own life a lot of the experiences that women were reporting about their experiences with, m with men. Um, I've never been attractive to men in my life. I'm grateful for it every day. Um, no offence. Um, <laughs> but um, what I did realise was the stories that I had seen, where I had seen butch lesbians portrayed anywhere, I had seen them as, I'd seen them portrayed as predatory and threatening uh, and uh, lecherous. That's the only thing I'd ever seen um, if I'd seen anyone butch in culture anywhere. Mainstream culture I'm talking about. Um, and I realised around about the time that everything was going on with Harvey Weinstein, I realised that those characters that had were my only anchor points for my identity, they had been written by straight men who treat women the way that they want people to believe lesbians treat women, right? And it was mind-blowing for me. And I realised that all my life, 30 years of my life, I've been walking in the shadow of the predatory butch, right? And it doesn't exist. That thing that I was so frightened of being, that stereotype that I, of all my life, you know, to the point where I've gone out of my way, to the, I you know, to the point where the idea of a woman thinking I was attracted to her was absolutely hideous to me, it was terrifying to me, you know, because I would never want to be seen that way. And I realised that the reason, you know, that image, that, that, that behaviour towards women, which I don't recognise in any of my butch friends, is that was being composed by the script writers like Harvey Weinstein, who was selling the world this idea of butch lesbians, which is not real. And I was so fucking angry about it. Uh, and, but it was a real liberation as well when I realised that that was what had been going on my whole life. When I realised that this thing that I was very afraid of being associated with was a complete fiction. And when I saw Hannah Gadsby, I realised that we can tell our own stories and we can take back that narrative. You know, and so there's a, I mean, my language, I apologise, has already, we've bolted the stable door really there, haven't we? But um, I think that, you know, there's a line um, in, in the song Black Tie, which I, I wrote this song uh, very soon after seeing Hannah Gadsby, when all these ideas were going around in my head. And the line that means the most to me from the song is the images that's, that fucked you were a patriarchal structure. And that is what I'm talking about. The images of what I thought butchness were, was, because I'd never seen any positive images of what, what butchness is. Um, and so from there, I, you know, it, it just started this thing in my head where I realised what it would have meant to me when I was a kid to see a woman who looked like me, to know, to be given the permission that there is that that is a valid way to be a woman. That there are a million ways to be a woman, and that this is one of them. That you can be a woman and wear what the world would call men's clothes. That I always just thought of as my clothes, you know. And uh, and to be that thing on stage that I never had is something that is very, very, very important to me now. And the f and so I've gone full circle from being terrified of the word butch for so long to slowly coming to this point of acceptance and peace with it to coming out the other side where I am determined to be the butchest singer that I can possibly be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guys.
Thank you for that question. Sure. Yeah. Folks, I know how much you've enjoyed this and we could go on for a very long time. However, I'm going to ask Grace if she'll finish with a song. But on Grace's and my behalf, thank you so much for coming along and being a wonderful audience. But mostly, it's thanks to Grace. Thank you very much, Grace. Cheers. Thank you all so much. Cheers. Well, I promise not too much repetition, but I think after what we were just talking about, it wouldn't make sense to play anything else, really. I already had a, a reassuring nod when I mentioned my language in the back, so um, I hope that's going to be okay. I already told you what the line is, so it doesn't make much sense not to sing it for you, really. So this is Black Tie. Thank you very much for that question, Chief. You will figure out what's yours. 
that it's got nothing to do with fitting neatly in a box that was constructed to make it seem like people come in just two teams and anything that's in between ain't good enough and you will love and you'll be loved and you're in black tie tonight get a postcard to my year 11 self in her year 11 health Darling, everything's gonna be alright. No, you won't grow out of it. You will find the clothes that fit and the images that fucked you were a patriarchal structure. And you never will surrender to that narrow view of gender. And there's folks you've yet to meet, but you're exactly up their street. And they've been waiting just as long to hear someone sing this song. Better days are on their way when it won't matter what they say on the labels and on the doors. You will figure out what's yours. And girl, you're gonna be so happy. Girl, you're gonna be just fine. Girl, you're gonna be so happy. And down the line, down the line. Grace Petrie, everybody. Thank you very, very much. Cheers. Thanks for coming along to this. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you to Blani for hosting these Absolutely, yeah. fantastic you. sessions. Buy a book.